Welcome, welcome. Welcome, welcome, welcome. How many welcomes do I usually do? Two. I'm pretty sure I subconsciously, um, that's a subconscious nod to armchair expert. I'm pretty solidly sure. Um, We love it. Um, Anyways. Welcome, welcome to the Linen Suit and Plastic Tie Podcast. This is the podcast where we dissect and analyze the amazing power of storytelling and learn how to harness that power to supercharge our everyday lives. I'm Gorv. And I'm Kevin. Okay, Gorv, I gotta ask. A few episodes ago, uh, we talked extensively about this pair of shoes that you were eyeing and Sophia, our dear friend, specifically told you not to buy. Yeah. What, what what's the follow up on that? How how's the situation with the shoes? I bought them. I um I purchased them. I saw a like a week after that conversation, I went on a trip to Europe. Um, so I was in Europe for a few weeks, and it was amazing. I did London, which was spectacular, to Venice, to Milan, to Paris. And really, in that time, I got engulfed in luxury. Like, you see these beautiful luxury brands that we all know and love and heard of, but the homes of them. And you see fashion, and you see all these amazing things. And high fashion is really interesting in uh, Los Angeles, right? So I was in Europe. This is where high fashion comes from. This is like Chanel, Prada, Mm -hmm. Gucci, galore. But not streetwear fashion. That's not where this comes from, Like. Uh, and the shoes we were talking about were streetwear. These were StockX purchase, and I bought at the end of Europe. So it's funny because I come back from this land of luxury, and I have these brand new basketball shoes that I bought um, from StockX, right? And I'm wearing them, and I got compliments immediately last night. Literally seconds out my door, I walk by someone who's like, recognize them. He's like, nice. And um, I got a bunch of comments on them last night. And it was an interesting thing because I'm, I just came back again, like uh, from the height of luxury, where these wouldn't be luxury things. Like these are Puma basketball shoes that um, people know in LA. So it was interesting because it's this conversation idea of what is luxury, what is valuable, what is expensive, and it's so region specific. And I think I've spent a lot of time in my time living in LA, dressing like like a New Yorker, an East Coast person more with my suits and ties and dress shoes. But really in LA, that's not, that's not LA fashion. That's not, because it's, LA fashion has touches of this stuff, but it's much more everyday, is much more streetwear and t-shirts and hoodies and things like that. So it's an interesting idea of the different worlds of high fashion, things we spend money on as a society, and how the value is driven not by the actual Pacific fabric or the materials, but by what is valued in which environment you're in currently. So you're saying you got your money's worth, basically. Yeah, time will tell. I mean, I enjoy them. I think it was a good purchase. I don't regret it. They came out really nice. Um, the bots came damaged, so I got a, a, a little refund. A partial refund which was great because i'm like i'm wearing these anyways and i'm gonna resell them mm-hmm. um so yeah all in all i'm i'm happy with the purchase it was an exciting thing i'm glad i did it um and yeah we'll see how it, we'll see where my relationship with these shoes go well we we've spent quite some time talking about 
these shoes that you own, and、um, and it's very fitting that today we are talking to someone who knows a lot about the love of things. That's right, people.、Um, today we are talking to Dr. Aaron Ahuvia.、Um, he is a professor of marketing at University of Michigan Dearborn College of Business, and he is. Uh, one of the most widely known and widely published and cited academic experts on the topic of non-interpersonal love. So today we are going to talk to Aaron about a lot of huge and important topics, like what it means to love, and we're gonna get into some of the concepts covered in his new book, The Things We Love. Our passions connect us and make us who we are. It's going to be another great conversation that、uh, explores a whole new aspect of storytelling. Let's get to it. Today we have a fantastic guest to talk about something we love, and that is the love of things.、Uh, we have Dr. Aaron Ahuvia joining us,、uh, and Aaron. To start us off, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? What is your story? Okay, so I, when I was younger, had a strong interest. I still do in philosophy, and when I got to high school,、uh, I was very lucky. I had the opportunity to take philosophy courses at the University of Michigan, and so I started doing that.、Um, went on to. Become a college student there and majored in philosophy. Really enjoyed that, but getting a job as a philosophy professor has always been、uh, difficult because there just aren't that many positions compared to the number of people who would like to do that. And at that time, it was even worse、uh, than it than it normally is.、Um, so I started to think about what else I could do, and I had an interest in employee owned companies. Their workplace democracy issues. So I managed to get a job at a company in Chicago called Duff and Phelps, which is a big corporate finance firm that had a practice where they set up employee-owned companies.、And、I discovered that although I liked the topic of employee-owned companies, I hated actually working at this finance firm and doing the stuff I was doing there. Uh, it was it was not my thing,、uh, but they told me that I needed to get an MBA. So while I was there, I enrolled in the MBA program at Kellogg、uh, Northwestern. And as I was making my way through that MBA program, I went to one of my professors and said, "I just cannot stand my job. It's driving me crazy. What else can I do?" And after we talked for a few minutes, he said, "You know." You're a PhD person. You're an academic at heart.、Um, why don't you get a PhD in marketing? So I did. I moved out of the MBA program into the PhD program. And as I was going through, I had a course with the very well-known marketing professor Philip Kotler, and he was all about how marketing is everywhere, even when you're dating. You're marketing yourself to the person you're dating. I was single, and dating was just so much more interesting than marketing to me. So I asked if I could 
do some research on the relationship between dating and marketing. And he actually played matchmaker a little bit himself and connected me with a professor, Mara Edelman, who had a bunch of data on a matchmaking service. This was in the early 1990s. And online dating, matchmaking services, these sorts of things were just getting off the ground. They really were not a big deal in America at all. It was a very strange thing to do. And we became the world's leading experts, academic experts on dating services, singles ads, all that sort of thing. And I say that without bragging because we were the only experts. There was nobody else doing that at the time. So we're number one in the field of one. Uh, But we got a lot of media attention, uh, ended up on the Oprah Winfrey show. Then after a couple years of being uh, Mr. Dating Services, I realized that being known as the dating service guy would not get me a job at a top business school. But I had spent years reading the literature on the psychology of love. I didn't want to give up all of that knowledge. What if I took all this literature on the psychology of love and applied it to understanding products and brands people loved? But I was really interested in in more than that. Um, So the research I did didn't just specifically ask about products and brands. It talked to people about whatever they loved, objects of any kind, nature, activities. And the advantage of doing that is that you didn't get demand effects. Nobody was telling me about a brand just because I'd asked to hear about brands. When people said they loved a brand, they they were saying that because that's one of the things they love. And many people had noticed that consumers love things. And so there were comments, sort of tangential comments in papers up to that point about it. But nobody had ever sat down and really looked at it in depth. So I was the first person to do that and published the first paper on brand love. I wasn't even calling it brand love at that time. And then a little while after that, together with uh, Professor Barbara Carroll, we published a paper that was called Brand Love and popularized, had the phrase brand love in the title. And then I went on to write a total of 14 papers on the topic of brand love over the course of my career. And most recently, I've taken all this and put it into a wonderfully accessible book uh, that I uh, aim at a general audience. It's the, the concept behind the book is that it's something a person in marketing would benefit from, but it's not a marketing book per se. I modeled it after Malcolm Gladwell's book, The Tipping Point, which is a huge hit. It's one of the best-selling marketing books of all time, but it's written to explain consumer behavior. And that's the, the approach I took here too. So that's how we got to this point, yeah. Yeah, no, that that's really cool. I also, uh, I'm a big Malcolm Gladwell fan as well. I rarely hear someone describe The Tipping Point or any of his books as marketing books, but they are. And I, I also, it really depends on who you talk to because some people are like, oh, it's a consumer behavior book. It's a psychology book. It's a human behavior book. It's a society book. I think what you're trying to get across with your book as well is that it's, it's not one thing. It can just be applied in so many different fields, right? It, it depends on what you're interested in, what you're passionate about, who you are when you read it. 
And it actually ties into the way you were talking about marketing, about how marketing is in everything. And it's it's the way we talk about storytelling. Storytelling is dating. Storytelling is selling a product. Storytelling is the way churches expand. It's the way people connect with one another. So I just loved all those parallels with storytelling. And of course, let's get into your exciting work. And I think we, we want to start off by trying to do something big here. Let's try to define love, if you will. What, what does it mean to you to love something? So I'm going to give you two answers to this. Uh, the first one comes out of the initial research I did, which was all about exactly trying to come up with a definition. There was a, a revolution in thinking about love for 2,000 plus years people have been trying to come up with a definition of love that is what they call a classical definition, meaning it's very clear that something either is, is love or is not love, and there's no middle ground. And people had brought forward a lot of different definitions of love, and they never worked. Finally, psychologists made a lot of progress on this by giving up on that idea entirely saying that's the reason we can't find that is that it just isn't what love is. Love is a phenomenon. It's a psychological phenomenon that has a lot of different aspects to it. And loving someone or something is being having enough of these different aspects of love, having enough of them at a high enough level that it kind of tips you into this experience of love. But there definitely is this middle ground. And I think we all know that, that when you think about the things you love or the people you love, there are some people you definitely love. There's probably 7 billion people on this planet that you don't love because you've never really met them and know nothing about them. But there's people that are kind of on the borderline and maybe you love them some days and not other days. If you think about your extended family, you probably love your immediate family. But as it gets more and more distant, as it goes out, you still love some of those people, but a little less. Sort of fades out gradually as you go out the family tree. So I can talk about what those elements of love are. And in the book, I go into them and discuss them all in depth. And so love, in that sense, is getting having enough of each of those elements that as a whole, you feel like this is a love relationship. So just to satisfy people's curiosity, they are things like having a passionate involvement with something, uh, enjoying the activity of being with that person or thing, feeling that it's a part of your own identity, having a long history. So having a long history with it is a, is a great example because when people have a long history with a person or thing, that increases their sense that they love the person or the object, but it's not required. You can fall in love with someone that you don't have any history with or fall in love with an object you don't have any history with. So it's not a required feature. It's just something that gives you a few more points in that direction. All of that said, I'm going to give you now another definition. And this is, if I wanted to give you a succinct definition of what I really think the core of love is about, I would say that loving a person or a thing is finding that person to be so excellent 
that you want to make that person or that object a part of who you are. You want it not just to be in its company, you want it to become a part of your identity. And that love is a process of expanding your sense of identity to include other people as well as objects or activities within your sense of who you are. Wow, that's that's so interesting. And I, I love the the story of our identity. We we've had we've done episodes on identity storytelling and mm-hmm. this idea of picking things you love and bringing them into you because you want it to be a part of that story. You want it to be a part of that identity. It's a story that you are so intoxicated with that you you see so much amazement and that you want that story to be a part of your story. I think that's so Absolutely. fascinating. Yeah, and a lot of times the things that people love aren't things that play an important role in their life story. So I've spoken with car collectors and the car that they love most sometimes, they'll say, isn't the fanciest car they ever owned or the the rarest car they ever owned. It's the first car they bought as a car collector because that marks the change in their identity. And that becomes this object that plays the central role in their life story. You know, how did I become a car collector? Because they have a kind of a nostalgia and a passion and a sentimental value around that particular object. Uh, The same way, very often, there'll be music. And you'll hear a song and it'll bring back a certain time in your life. And so that song is part of your life story and how you see yourself. You might not want to listen to that song very often anymore. I mean, there's there's songs that I am just sick to death of and I don't want to listen to very often. But when I if I if I hear them every once in a while, I get this flood of emotion that comes back due to the role that they play in forming my identity at some earlier point in time. Yeah, it's yeah. that story. It's that connection. It's the story we tell ourselves about things, which has such an impact. For me, I'm a car book collector. I have been my entire life. Not my entire life, but I have been for at least 10, 12 <laughs> years. Um, it wasn't like I was born and someone handed me a car book. No. Um, but since um, it's funny because it's, it, it's interesting, too, because life and society tells us to value certain things more. They tell us this is the most expensive car book. This is what's going to bring you most value. You turn this for money. It has utility. But when I think of my favorite comic books, yeah, it's the first story arc I ever read. There's a comic book even I picked up a couple of years ago that has no value to anyone, but it, I just really love the cover. It's a nod to the creators. And it's funny because that's, that's just a unique story in my head. It, it gives it more monetary value. It mm-hmm. gives it more utility to me. Um, and I, I find that such an interesting part of collectibles in general, this idea of how a lot of monetary ba- value to collectibles is these stories. It's these passion. It's enough people love something about it that it, we've assigned monetary value to it. And I think that's such an, it's a weird concept if you think about it intellectually. There can be quite the misfit between the things that one individual finds valuable because they fit with her or his life story and they have they play a role in that life story. And so they have sentimental value to that person and what the market sees as valuable, which is really often with collectibles, it's about telling a collaborative story with other people. You have the other, 
the other collectors, the other experts and connoisseurs, and you spend a lot of time talking to each other online or at meetings. And together you work out a story about a certain domain, a certain area. It could be comic books. So you develop a collective story about how comic books became an important part of American culture. And in that story there, you say, this comic book was a turning point. It really changed the way people thought about comics and drew and produced comics, etc. And so because it has a pivotal role in the story of that area, it becomes monetarily valuable. Sometimes people feel a great emotional connection to that, but sometimes people's emotional connection is to, you know, the comic that they read with their best friend who, when they were nine years old, and that might not have much monetary value. And that comes up as a conflict uh, because when people want to sell, if they do, a lot of times people don't, never want to sell that emotionally valuable comic book or whatever it is, but sometimes they do, but they want the buyer to pay for their emotional attachment. And so the price that they put on it is out of any sense of reality with what a, a buyer will pay who doesn't have the same emotional connection to it. On that note, I'm also wondering, you know, when it comes to the love of things, how does uh, the idea of materialism um, come into play with that? You know, are, are these two concepts necessarily, you know, equal? How are they related? That's part of my current research is looking at this in some depth. So they are positively correlated if we're talking about people who love brands. I don't know about loving things that aren't brands. That would also be an interesting thing to look at. My hunch is that people who love, say, forests, there's probably no correlation between people loving forests and being materialistic. But if you love brands, yeah, you're going to get a correlation between people who love brands and people who are materialistic. Yet there is within that a noticeable difference. And the people who love brands tend to be much better off than people who are materialistic in other ways. Because loving a brand means that you're happy with things that you own. You've bought something from this brand and you really love it. It's, it's working for you. You're very happy with it. Many people who are materialistic don't actually love anything. They want to buy all kinds of things. And so the pleasure they often get from products, this comes from research from Marsha Richens, who was a really major uh, scholar who did a lot of the groundbreaking work on materialism. And she talks about how a lot of the pleasure people who are materialists get from products is this fantasy they have about how wonderful it's going to be when they own it. So it's this daydream and they enjoy the daydream. But when they actually get it together and buy the product, the daydream ends and reality has to start. Reality is never remotely as good as their daydream was. They instantly become dissatisfied with the product. And the more they own it, longer they own it, the less they like it. And so then they need to buy something else. Whereas people who really love brands 
and score high. I, I, with Rajiv Batra and Rick Bogosi, we developed a, a scale for measuring how much people love something. It's a questionnaire that you can take. People who score very high on that questionnaire of loving brands, they're not always fixated on buying more stuff because they are really happy with the things they have and are happy using them. So for the brand side, for the people who are making the things, how do you create that fantasy? Or you know, how do you, for existing customers, for the people who have already owned those products, their fantasies have become reality. How do you keep that fantasy going? A lot of it is fiction. A lot of companies sort of make up a backstory about themselves. Uh, a lot of consumers who are buying this stuff think that these companies have a noble heritage going back, you know, a hundred years and they've always been these great artisans. And that is true for a few of the companies, but for many of them, no, they were started by some corporation 20 years ago and just set up to, to have the sort of the look and the patina of this. Companies do a lot of stuff to try and create this image. They give away their products for free to celebrities in the hope that the celebrity will use it. Uh, there's a fabulous uh, show, one of my favorite shows, a terrible name for the television show. It's called Episodes. Uh, well, it's not a bad name, but you imagine you try and search yeah. online for a show that's called Episodes. You, It's impossible to find this thing online. Uh, nonetheless, if you do manage to find it, it's one of the best written shows. And it's about these two English television comedy writers, a, a couple that come to Hollywood to produce a show and sort of the culture clash uh, between the, the Brits and Hollywood. But one of the things that they drool over is that all the Hollywood celebrities get to go to these rooms, which are set up with just tables full of incredibly expensive things. And the celebrity just walks along and sort of takes for free anything that they want off of these tables. Um, but of course, they aren't allowed to do that because they're just the show writers. So that's part of it, trying to get the product in the hands of the right people. And a lot of what people are doing now is influencer marketing, where they pay influencers to talk up the product in the hope of creating this sort of fiction around it. And then the influencers have to create this fiction around themselves, because the whole idea is the, the influencer creates a fictitious story about themselves, and then, or maybe not fictitious, but nonetheless, an appealing story about themselves. And then if they recommend a product that their image rubs off on the product and goes along with that. As you are well aware, there's thousands and thousands of people desperately trying to be an influencer. You know, when my dad was growing up, all the little boys wanted to be policemen or firemen. When I was growing up, we all wanted to be rock stars. And now when kids are growing up, they all want to be influencers. Yeah. Um, I've never heard anyone describe episodes without bringing up Matt LeBlanc. So I love that. Great show. <laughs> episodes was a great show. And uh, like I said before uh, you answered the question, um, I was going to ask a question about uh, D2C companies, direct-to-consumer companies like Casper, like uh, Warby Parker, like um, Glossier. These things that have come up where a lot of it is not 
um, especially Casper is a great example where I remember reading a study that there's like 30 different mattress in a box companies all selling the same product, but Casper is the most expensive because they've told you the story that their brand is the most comfortable and they, uh, and you don't want to risk it on a mattress. And it's funny because they spent so much money on just telling that story and where their product didn't change much because they're creating actual monetary value through storytelling, through brands. And it's that idea of how important brands are through their storytelling efforts. They also, to the best of my knowledge, have what marketers call the first mover advantage. So mm. it's possible they weren't really the first mover. Uh, but the, the story is that whoever gets there gets to the public imagination first. Not necessarily the company who's really the first, but the first person to, the first company to prominence and awareness that consumers associate that with authenticity. It's the real thing. And they associate it with quality. So those companies get to charge a premium for their product because consumers see that as quality. And quality and trust are very important in direct-to-consumer marketing. All of these companies like Warby Parker and Casper, they all claim to be value brands, which means they're not the cheapest brand, that's a bargain brand. They're not the most expensive, that's a premium or a luxury brand. They're a value brand, which is high quality, but the best quality for the money. And if you're gonna do that, people need to trust you and believe that you are gonna actually provide them with high quality because they're not super cheap. You know, they're mid-priced. And a lot of these brands like Casper Morby Parker tell a story about themselves that explains how they're able to produce something that's very high quality for less money. And so this, the, the, their narrative, the function is to justify the consumer's belief that they're getting a bargain, that they're getting an excellent product for a medium amount of money. I will tell you one other interesting uh first mover story. Have you ever heard of a brand of cookie? It's like an Oreo, but it's called Hydrox. Hydrox cookies? Never. I have not. They went, they went out of business a little while ago. Uh, when I was growing up, they were seen as the cheap Oreo knockoff. I was interesting to learn that actually they were the original. Mm -hmm. And they invented the Oreo style cookie. But then this other company came in and this other company was the, uh, a big company. It was called the National Biscuit Company. Biscuit being meaning cookie. Uh, and now we call that Nabisco. The National Biscuit Company is now just called Nabisco. And they came in and copied their product. But because they had national reach, they were able to get into markets all around the country faster than this small company that was trying to grow. And so in all of these new markets, Nabisco established Oreo as the authentic. And when the actual original Hydrox got there, it was seen as the knockoff. And Hydrox tried for years to convince people that they were really the original chocolate sandwich cookie. But 
they were never able to get that to stick despite it being the truth. And eventually they went out of business. Wow. That is definitely such an interesting story. And we kind of talked a lot about, uh, obviously, um, people really have love for brands and, and things mm-hmm. um, and kind of that ownership experience is a way for us to sort of expand our identity to sort of add parts uh, that we think are excellent uh, to ourselves to, to add more to our own identity. So I guess along that line, do you think we can buy happiness from from things or, or is happiness just kind of always fleeting? Neither. Mm. You can't buy happiness, but neither is it always fleeting. Well, you can to a certain extent. Uh, Money does a lot of great things for people. Having a moderate amount of money, this is an area I've actually done a lot of research and writing on, the relationship between income and happiness. So first of all, you have to make a distinction between two different aspects of happiness. So one aspect is how you feel emotionally. Someone were to say to you, like, what are you feeling right now? Are you energized, down? Do you feel happy, sad? That's sort of your emotional experience at any given moment in time. That's actually pretty different from another aspect of happiness, which is called life satisfaction. And life satisfaction is a judgment. It's cognitive. It's a judgment that you're making. And so you look at your life and you judge your life to be successful or not successful. Life satisfaction is pretty reasonably related to income because when we we even use the word success as a synonym for income. So if we want to say someone is rich, but we don't want to say rich, we want to say they're successful. With that kind of a cultural idea, if you ask people how satisfied you are with your life, how successful do you feel you've been in your life? People who are making a lot of money will be like, well, I'm pretty, my life is good. I've succeeded. And you'll get that kind of a correlation. But if instead you ask people, how do you feel right at this moment? Are you happy or sad, angry, bitter, elated, relaxed? There's almost no correlation whatsoever between people's feelings at any given moment and how much money uh, that they have. All that said, you can acquire lasting happiness. There's a number of different variables. One of them is getting enough sleep. Huge, huge, just getting enough sleep every night. If you get enough sleep, you'll feel better all day. And having money can often help you be healthy and rested if you allow it to. However, the thing that matters the most, it seems to have the most lasting impact, is the quality of your social relationships. If you're married, the quality of your marital relationship has a huge impact on your actual happiness going forward. Um, The quality of your friendships have a very large impact on this. And I think there's an evolutionary reason why having Good friends, you don't have to have a lot of friends. You have to have a a reasonable number. People say like two to five close friends that you feel you can really count on and will be there for you. 
that sort of thing produces lasting happiness and doesn't diminish. Those relationships don't diminish the way buying something does. Whereas getting more money, you feel a short-term elation because you've got more money, but then the impact of that tends to diminish quite precipitously over time. And I think the difference is carrying costs. So if you have five really close friends, that's kind of like an optimal number. There's actually a downside to getting more really close friends because it takes a lot of time to maintain a friendship. And if you get more and more friends, you run out of time to maintain those relationships. Plus a virtue of having friends is that you can ask them for favors, but they also can ask you for favors. And if you know you have a huge number of close friends, you're gonna be inundated with requests for help. So there's sort of a, a, an optimal number. You don't wanna to have too few friends, but from an evolutionary perspective, it's not advantageous to a person to have a huge number of friends. As a result of that, feeling satisfied is like an off switch. It tells you if you don't have any friends, it says you're lonely, you're miserable, get friends. But at a certain point it says, okay, you got a good number, I'm going to turn it off. I'm going to, you'll just get to stay happy forever if you can keep this number because you don't need to get more. Whereas with money, there's no carrying cost. If you've got a million dollars, you might as well have $2 million. You know, that, that it's not like having that million dollars is going to make demands on you all the time. And having $2 million is going to make more demands on you. So since there's no carrying cost, there's no reason in an evolutionary sense for humans to have developed an off switch. It makes more sense from an evolutionary perspective for humans to have this insatiable kind of drive. To close out every one of our episodes, we have this fun segment called Suspenders. Uh, it works like this. Uh, we ask you a fun, random question that's unrelated to anything, and you can give us any answer you feel like. You've got it. All right. Question of the day is, what is something that's uncomfortable, but you also feel like everyone should experience at least once in their lifetime? Wow, that's hard. Okay, the first thing that flashes to my head um, are embarrassing situations. And I would say too much embarrassment is a really bad thing. It is, for me, the most uncomfortable thing. When you say, imagine an uncomfortable situation, embarrassment is like the yeah. very first thing that hits me. Uh, the advantage of having some experience with it is learning that you can be embarrassed and go on with your life and the world really doesn't come to an end. Having a certain amount of resiliency from embarrassment allows you to do things and it gives you freedom to do things. I recommend dancing in public <laughs> if that's what you want to do. <laughs> and I think if you can, if you can learn to accept the possibility of embarrassment without that controlling you, then you have a, a lot of opportunities to dance in public. Love it. Amazing. Well, thank you so much for your time. We really appreciate it. Uh, so much great learnings here and we, we really appreciate your time.
Welcome back to Top Hat. This is the part of the episode where we dissect and analyze some of the cool and fun insights we got from this week's expert storyteller. And this week we had Dr. Aaron Ahuvia. Kev, what did you think of the conversation? Um, well, it's eye-opening for sure, Gaurav. And I, I think we're on a really great role here. We've talked uh, earlier with Dr. Cassie Holmes about time and happiness. And this time we're talking to Dr. Huvia about um, love, the love of things. And, you know, big, big topic, a lot of great learnings. So um, I think we should just really just, you know, get to it. And I think the, the first key takeaway from this conversation that I really loved is his take on what love means, which is obviously a big, big question. But I loved this input from him, which is, you know, loving something is the idea of finding um, a quality or a feature associated with that thing that is so excellent that I want it to be part of myself. To love something and to have something is a way of expanding my own identity, is a way of enriching my story, the story I can tell about myself. And that is a very storytelling-centric way of understanding love, uh, which I think is a pretty cool perspective. You know, identity storytelling is always very interesting. And we've talked a little bit about it on the show about the different types of things and different types of stories we tell ourselves about who we are, the different types of things we do in our lives, the different things, type of things we spend our money on to enhance and tell the story about who we are, what we love to ourselves and the people around us. And a great example in my mind is coffee table books. When you walk in and see coffee table books, often those aren't something that guests are going to read or things that you read on a regular basis. It's some way to personalize the entire environment. For example, looking at mine right now, um, I have a couple things on the history of Batman, uh, Fantastic Four, comic book stuff. Uh, I have a couple books on technology and economics. So it's kind of that cross of technology, comic books, economics, things like that that I really love. And so you have things like coffee table books, like collectibles, like the shoes you wear, the shirts you wear, the graphics you wear, that are basically taking your environment and telling other people, this is who I am, this is what I like, and this is what I want to be a part of my identity. My coffee table only hosts my TV remote and a PS5 controller. But yeah, I mean, obviously, the, the things we have, the things we show, tell people and tell ourselves also about who we are and that is the, the power of storytelling and another thing uh, that i couldn't stop thinking about was aaron's perspective on um the story of materialism the idea that so, for some people when they think they love something when they think they really like something they're not actually loving the experience of actually owning that thing or that product they are obsessed with the fantasy with the story of what can they do with with that thing you know how their life will be like once they have it and when they actually buy that thing or own that thing sometimes that fantasy can you know break because reality hits and they now they're, they're left with that item 
uh, that isn't necessarily what they imagined, which I think does also provide some good insights into how companies can conduct marketing, you know? Yeah, and I, I think experiential marketing is so important. We talked about on the show with Chris Connolly about how for Disney, they, they sell the experience of the happiest place on earth. And yeah, you fall in love with the idea of the experience. And I'm not saying, and I don't think anyone's saying that that's always going to come up short for you. It, I think the important point here is not that every time you, you get sucked in and fall in love with an experience and then you're disappointed. I think the point here is that you fall in love with an experience. The story you're telling yourself is not about that piece of metal or the color of those shoes. The story you're telling yourself is about the experience of you walking down the street with those shoes. It's the experience of how you feel when you own them. You are looking and falling in love with the experience, not the product. And that's the thing with storytelling. You want to tell people the story of how it's going to make people feel. And that's going to do it. This has been another great episode of the Linen Suit and Plastic Tie podcast. If you like our content, subscribe and follow us wherever you listen. Follow us on Instagram at LSBTPod, LinkedIn, Linen Suit and Plastic Tie. Leave us a comment and review wherever you listen to let us know what you're thinking. Uh, reach out to us to uh, let us know how we can do better. Yeah, and this is your sign to uh, go to that online shopping cart you have open on a tab somewhere and just check out. Buy the bag, buy the shoes. You deserve it. You're doing great. Have a good one.